was a child, my best friend, I lived like one street over. So it was really easy after school or on the weekends to go over to his house and to go skateboarding. We lived at the bottom of a hill, which when I was a kid was like the steepest, tallest hill in Phoenix. And now it's just kind of like a little hill. Um, And he had a brother the same age as my brother. So like the four of us could hang out and it was great until they moved. And then that friendship just kind of ended. I mean, we were little, we were maybe eight, nine years old when he moved. And um, I didn't really talk to him much after that. And then in high school, I had a lot of friends. I mean, I played sports, so I had teammates that I got along with and hung out with. But really, the closest friends I had were like in the classes that I took, the classmates that I worked on projects with. There's just something about calculus that really bonds people. Maybe it's just that common enemy. Um, And then, you know, I graduate and I went on to college. And so some of those friends kind of disappeared. But in college, one of my roommates became really close friends of mine, and we bonded over going to football games and playing video games and playing drinking games and just all the different kinds of games that we could think of. Um, And that really bonded us together for a little while. And then as I got older, things just continued to change, right? Stages of life continued to change. Friends would move away. They'd get new jobs. Uh, We got married. Lauren and I got married, and, and we moved to churches. And then we had a son, and we moved to BBC. And And then we had a daughter. And and honestly, like in the stages of life as they come, it just seems like it's a little bit harder and harder to make new friends. I mean, and sometimes I I kind of wonder, like, is it kind of worth the effort to keep making more friends? (laughs) I mean, can we be honest a little bit? Like, it's a challenge to get to know people. You have to introduce yourself. You have to get out there. And then then you have to just keep investing and to be your friend or to be their friend. See, that's the lie that we're highlighting today. It's, it's, I'm better off alone. And I think this is a little unique in the rest of the series because this isn't a lie that we are just going to like come out and say for the most part. Most of us aren't just going to be like, hmm, I'm good. Most of us, I think, have this kind of just in the back of our minds as we think about life and the busyness and the priorities and the other things that are going on. Friendship just sort of takes a, a lower tier. And so maybe for some of you, it's, it's you've lived a full life. I mean, you've had rich and deep friendships, but now you're older and, and maybe your spouse has even passed and, and some of those friends have passed and you're just kind of spending much more time alone. And you think, well, this is just kind of where I am now. Or maybe you're just starting your career or maybe you're, you're working hard and, and you've got that first, that second job and you're trying to make sure that your boss sees how hard you're working, how much effort you're putting in, how much skill you've developed. And you just wanna make sure that they notice you because if you could take this step, then you'll be able to take the next step. You'll be able to go to the other company and take another step. And then you'll be able to start having the relationships you want because you'll have the freedom, you'll have the money, you'll have the success that you need in order to experience sort of this full life. And so you're, you're kind of pushing things to the side so that you can work 60, 70, 80 hours a week now and then have all the friendships and all the fun and all the things you want to experience in 10 years, 20 years. Maybe you're 20 years down the road and you're experiencing the 80-hour work weeks just kind of keep coming. And you excuse it. You don't have a lot of friends, but you, know, you get to take those trips every once in a while with your kids and you get along with the people at the office, right? See, I don't think we just tell ourselves, I'm better off alone, but what happens is in the back of our heads, we start to excuse the lack of relationships that we have. We start to excuse the shallowness of the friendships that we experience. We start to excuse the reality that I'm just kind of lonely. I feel isolated. And it's not just you. I mean, this is something that is uh, statistically as Americans, one in two experience loneliness. That means half of you in this room, the person next to you, if it's not you, 
but you probably experience it too, right? You're probably experiencing it this week, this weekend, in the last month. Even if you're ex- extroverted, you're outgoing, you do a lot of things, there's still this sense in which you get home and you lay down in bed and you just wonder in your mind, does anybody really care about me? I've done so much to help them. I've done so much to, to have experiences and to plan fun things and to do amazing things, but, but does anyone know me? Know what I'm experiencing? Know what I'm struggling with? See, loneliness is something that's pervasive in our culture and it's crazy how silent we are about it. But we can go to social media and post about our trips. We can go to church and have a smile and and say good morning and everything's great or fine or pretty good. And then go home and have those same longing, the same wondering, even if we're married, even if we have kids, even if we have a roommate who actually does the dishes. I'm better off alone. That's the antithesis of what scripture teaches. That is the opposite of what God's intention is. And so this morning, as we open up this passage, we're gonna look at the book of Ecclesiastes, but we're also gonna be looking at other passages of scripture to help us understand that God intended us for community. God created us for community. He intends that we would have deep and rich and full relationships. And so uh, as you uh, have opened up to Ecclesiastes 4, you can follow along because that's what we're gonna highlight this morning. So God wants us to have friends. Uh, Verse seven, I'm gonna start with, uh, you can follow along as I read. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. So if you're not familiar with the book of Ecclesiastes, this is written by the king of Israel, Solomon. And Solomon is probably, I mean, just not just known as the wisest man in history, but as far as kings of Israel, probably the wealthiest, probably the most powerful, probably the one who had the most wives and concubines and all kinds of other things that in this world seem like they should be satisfying, seem like he should have sense some fulfillment and, and, and satisfaction that no other person could have experienced. He should have been just bubbling over with joy. And yet he writes this book from the perspective of a man who's maybe middle-aged or a little bit older and the wisdom to see that everything that he has, all of those things that he's experienced, everything that he strived for and achieved wasn't enough. And he uses this word over and over again throughout the book. ESV uh, translates it vanity. It's the Hebrew word hevel. And it's this imagery of of like a wisp, a vapor. Um, If you could picture like a field, uh, and maybe not in Phoenix because it doesn't get that cold. But if you're from somewhere else, you could picture a field where in the morning when the sun hits and starts to warm the dew, it just kind of evaporates. 
And you could see that steam coming off the field, but as soon as you see it, it disappears. There's nothing to it. It's just a vapor. That's what that word hevel means. And what Solomon continues to remind us throughout this whole book is that all of these things, all of these promises that the world around us seems to give that we're gonna find peace and hope and satisfaction and joy from are hevel, a vapor, vanity, nothingness. There's not enough money or sex or power to really fill the void inside of us. And so in this section, he begins to highlight that he's seen a person, a man who's working night and day, putting all of his effort and intention and energy to strive after riches and success, to see the fields and the crops, just bumper crops, right? They're just filled with everything or whatever the vision is that he sees in this toil. But he's doing it alone. And that's vanity. That's nothingness. It's worthless. It doesn't matter how hard he works. It doesn't matter how much success he sees. What that man is going to find out is it wasn't enough. Eugene Peterson takes these verses and translates it this way. I turned my head and saw yet another wisp of smoke on its way to nothingness. A solitary person, completely alone. No children, no family, no friends. Yet working obsessively late into the night, compulsively greedy for more and more, never bothering to ask, why am I working like a dog? Never having any fun. And who cares? See, we have this inherent ache when we read about someone from afar in a situation like this. Right? And what I mean by that is this, we can kind of recognize like, oh, that person, like he's working so hard. He's really gaining a lot of success. He seems to have a, a good amount of money, but he's doing it all by himself. Like, does he have any friends? He has no family. That must be so lonely. That must be so difficult. That must be so sad. There's something inside of us that we understand that from afar, like the idea of doing something by ourselves and only by ourselves. It's not good enough. That's not really what our hearts desire. That's not really what our souls long for. It's, it's, it's empty. It's not fulfilling, even if we achieve the success we're striving for. It's lonely. That's because we were created to be in relationships. God formed us to have a relationship with him and to have relationships with others. God desires for us to be known and to know others, to be loved and to love others. And isolation and alienation, it doesn't achieve that. No matter how much success you have, no matter how much money you accumulate, no matter how many accolades you collect, we need relationships with people. We need friendships. We need loved ones. 
And this isn't anything new. Like this is, comes from Genesis 1. So the, there's this picture of Genesis 1. It's this poetic view of God creating the cosmos, right? The, the heavens and the earth, the land and the sea. He's, he's forming all of these things and he's painting like a masterful, masterful painter. He's creating everything until it culminates in, in man and woman. And then giving them the cultural mandate, the idea that they should um, be fruitful and multiply, that they should fill and subdue and have dominion over the earth. In other words, they should create a community with the resources that God has formed, that they should build upon this a culture in which they honor and worship God and love one another. And out of that, that people should have those relationships as God intended, those friendships, marriages, kids, it's this picture almost of a city. It's the same in Revelation 21. The picture that John, the apostle who wrote the book of Revelation, writes is a picture of a city, a picture of people gathered together and they dwell among God where he is their God and they are his people. It's the uniting of relationships brought together. That's the picture that God is writing and calling us to from beginning to end. And yet in Genesis 2, we see God zooming in to really define this. And in, in the picture, he creates Adam and he says, it's not good that man should be alone. But he doesn't just, just say that and then create Eve. What he does is he, he almost teaches Adam the sense of loneliness that is in his soul. And so he forms Adam out of the dust and then he begins to plant a garden, this lush, lush and rich uh, area where, where Adam can live and dwell and have all the food and, and resources that he needs. And in the midst of that garden, he charges him to begin naming the animals. In other words, giving him a sense of authority over creation and, and, and almost parading animals before him uh, is the imagery that gets created in this chapter. And so Adam is, is like lion and tiger and bear. Oh my. And and giraffe, and sharks. And, and as he does this, Adam gets this longing sense continuing to build, like that's cool, but that's not enough. That's beautiful, but that's not enough. That's amazing, but it, there, there's just something missing, right? And it's that verse that starts that whole paragraph. It's not good that man should be alone. And finally, at the end of this section, God forms woman and brings them together. And Adam says, at last, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Finally, this is someone like me. Finally, this is what I've been looking for. Finally, this is the connection that I seek and desire more than anything in this creation. And so God forms them to have a relationship with him vertically and with one another horizontally. And that lasts less than a page <laughs> because in Genesis 3, they begin to reject God's plan and seek after their own. And as they do that, they become self-centered and self-seeking and just selfish. So much so that the same guy who said, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh comes before God. And when God accuses him, Adam, what did you do? He says, it was the woman. It was her. And you know what, God, you gave her to me. And in that, there's this fissure 
this rupturing of the relationship between Adam and Eve and between them and God, this division that continues to plague us today. And so our souls long for this sense of union, this sense of community with God and with other people, this sense of relationship, this sense of friendship. And yet because of sin, we can't have it. Because of the brokenness in our own flesh, we can't experience it. And that's a very heady theological way to say it, but here's what it looks like practically. This is what it looks like in our world practically. Uh, the striving for success, right? At the beginning of this passage, it looks like you can achieve everything that you put your mind to. You can work really hard and, and again, gain the promotions, gain the success, gain the, the money, and it's not enough. Or you can work really hard and that's all you focus on and still fail, and then you've got nothing. Either way, your soul isn't satisfied, right? Because, because we can't experience the relationships because of sin that we really desire, we start to try to fill that void with idols and tribalism and distractions. And so if it's not success, maybe it's something like politics. And it begins to become the priority of our identity, the priority in our life, that, that really the thing that matters most is the platform or the candidate that you voted, on, voted for or the, the hat that you wore, that's the signifier between the people that you can associate with and the people that you can't. That's the signifier between the people that you can trust and the people that you can't. That's the signifier for your tribe. And yet that doesn't hold up. It doesn't hold up because eventually your candidate's gonna lose. And then are you still connected to that person? And really what starts to happen is you've divided the people that you're in the same community with, your neighbors, your coworkers, your family, based on the color of the t-shirt that they wear and some convictions they have about a certain policy. And beyond that, even the people in the same t-shirt disagree. Yeah, they might, they might agree that we should beat them in the election or that we should beat them in the legislature but really, I think we should go this route with the tax policy and they, it doesn't matter. See, what happens is we continue to divide. As soon as there's, there's a tribe that you can be in, there's a way for that tribe to divide. That's the impact of sin. It's temporary. Those things don't last. They're not something you can actually build a firm foundation on. All right, even Taylor Swift. No, I know, I tried. I tried really hard not to bring up Taylor Swift. You guys have probably heard enough about her the last couple of weeks. And uh, that's my point. <laughs> um, I never knew enough about, or excuse me, I knew enough. <laughs> I never knew so much about Taylor Swift's love life. Couldn't tell you who her last three boyfriends were, uh, but I know whatever the rumors are now. Uh, and if you're a football fan or a Taylor Swift fan or a teenage girl or a middle-aged man, you know too. Um, <laughs> And Taylor Swift's love life and uh, the impact of that on the sales of that player's jersey is incredible. If you haven't heard, his jersey sales quadrupled in like a week. Yeah, good for him. Um, whether it's true or not, I guess. Uh, and if you haven't heard about that, which you probably have, you might have heard about the concerts that she was having over the last year or so, uh, the impact that they've had on people, in particular the Swifties. 
right? And I've got nothing against Taylor Swift. Like we had a dance party in our living room yesterday with our two-year-old and it just happened to be Taylor Swift coming through the speakers. And like, I don't feel 22 anymore, but I'll still dance to that. Um, and and the, the fans that she has, you know, they, they'll buy the jerseys and they'll, they'll vehemently defend her online and they'll buy those expensive concert tickets and buy the resale, even more expensive concert tickets to be a part of that. But eventually she's going to stop writing songs. She's going to stop going uh, to concerts and, and stop playing them. Eventually that unifying figure for those people is gone. And then what do they have left? See, the reality is, is that we have all of these different things that we can try to find unity uh, and, and find bonds built upon, but none of that is a foundation that we, can, that we can really cling to. None of that is a foundation that really unites us because as soon as we disagree, as soon as someone hurts us, as soon as something happens that, that ruptures that relationship built on these things, we look for something else, someone else. And so then we move or we get a new job or, or we change schools we change teams and we go to find new friends, find new relationships, or we give up entirely because it's hevel, it's vanity, it's a distraction. But Solomon is clear. Look again at verse nine, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Uh, I read a joke the other day that every man over 30 has to either get really into classic cars or World War II. So I've been watching Band of Brothers. Um, and if you don't know what Band of Brothers is, like this is a HBO series that came out like 20 years ago. Uh, and it's, it's amazing, to be honest with you. Uh, but it's like 10 episodes. And it starts with this uh, group of soldier, American soldiers, uh, basically in like their, their basic training and goes all the way through their experiences of World War II uh, in the different wars, the different, ba- or the different battles, the different things that they've experienced, the loss, the trials, all the way to the end of the war. Uh, and from the very moment of the, like the very like first few minutes of the first episode, you see it's really clear. They're utterly dependent on being able to rely on one another. The relationships that they have with one another, the bonds that they have to build with one another in order to survive, in order to press on, in order to get through what they're about to enter into is dependent on how much they can trust one another. Is that person next to you, that man on your right and your left, is he able to pick you up when you fall down? Are you willing to do the same for him? Is he willing to sacrifice for you? Are you willing to sacrifice for him? Is he willing to lay down his life for you? Because that might be necessary. The success of that unit is utterly dependent on how well they trust each other. Right? That's the picture that we want to see in friendships in some ways, isn't it? That despite trials and tribulation, despite pain and heartbreak, despite the, the reality of just life coming into the midst of our relationships, we want people that are going to be with us, people that are for us, people that will even challenge us when we need to be challenged, correct us when we need to be corrected. Uh, we talked about uh, 
Pal just a few minutes ago with Kim. When, when he gets up here, one of the things that he is talking about is people that are willing to encourage you when you're experiencing this with your kids or with a loved one who's battling an addiction and you don't know what to do. But it's also a time when people are gonna correct you and tell you, you know, you really can't do that. You can't support them in this way when they're doing these things. Because when you're dealing with addiction, you can't just keep giving them money. That's a friend. That's a friend who steps into the fray with you, who steps into the battle with you. Jesus puts it this way in John 15. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. If you do what I command you. If you don't take anything else away from today, take this away. Jesus is the better friend. Right, when, when Solomon is talking about the blessings of a friend who's by your side, who keeps you warm at night, who, who encourages you, who, who helps defend you from being robbed, who comes alongside of you, who celebrates with you when you have successes, who mourns with you when you have losses, who is there through it all. Jesus is the exemplar. He's the one who's come and stepped into the fray for us. And beyond that, he didn't just do that because he likes us. Like he didn't think, oh, you're so talented or you're so funny or you're just really kind of good looking. Like I'll hang out with you, right? Jesus did this in the midst of division, of strife, of rebellion and sin. God created us for community. He desires us to experience deep and rich and meaningful relationships. And those are divided in this world over and over again. And so he stepped into this world. He didn't just say, hey, I'm gonna start over. Like Adam, Eve, thanks for trying, fireball. And he also didn't just throw his hands up and step back and say, yeah, you guys have fun, good luck. He stepped into this world. He took on flesh. He said, I will build relationships with my people and I will be their God and I will rescue them. And by my blood, they will be united with God and one another. He was a friend willing to lay down his life for the sake of his friends, for us, because he loves us. And that overcomes the division, that overcomes the tribalism, that overcomes the idolatry, that overcomes the sin in this world. And when we begin to experience the forgiveness, when we begin to experience the salvation that we can have in Jesus, we also begin to look beyond the temporary, right? Beyond the the partisan politics, beyond the, the allure of wealth and success, beyond the other things that divide us from our neighbor, our coworker, our family member, and our friend, because we're prioritizing different things. We begin to look beyond those temporary things and have a perspective that's eternal, to move above those things to look from the perspective of God at at human beings created in his image and seek to have relationships with them. It empowers us to do things like forgive in the midst of conflict, to repent when we are wrong. It empowers us to do things that go beyond just being like, I have a little bit of extra, so here, have this. I'm gonna sacrificially be generous to you to satisfy a need that you have that I'm willing to forego. 
It empowers us to have relationships that have the depth and the, and the encouragement and the love that we long for at the depths of our being. Because he came and showed us what it looked like to be a friend like that. He, ex- he lived that out so that we could experience it even with one another. That is the call to Christians. That is the call to the church, right? We want to have these deep and rich and meaningful relationships and Christ empowers us to do that because we have been adopted as sons and daughters. We've been invited into his family. We have been encouraged and become a part of his body. And as a part of his body, we experience love and relationship and friendship at a far greater level than anywhere else in this world. Right? That's the power of the gospel. It's that Jesus turns friend, or Jesus turns enemies into friends. That is the power of friendship in the church. Like I, I've been really blessed with some opportunities to, to meet some of our brothers and sisters around the world in different missions contexts. And so I've been able to visit them uh, and, and to get to know them. And I'm always struck with the first time that I walk into uh, a new relationship with someone like that, that there's an automatic connection. There's something that already has been developed and it's that foundation of being a Christian. It's that foundation of having Jesus at the center of our identity. It's not some other idol that we're seeking. It's not something else that we're pursuing. It's not some other priority. It's that Jesus is at the center of who we are and that unites us. And that's the depth of the relationship that we get to experience as a part of the church, as a part of the body of Christ, is that when Jesus is at our center, we can go above and beyond all of those other things. We can begin to have the depth of relationship that our souls long for. We can have a friendship that is enjoyable and fulfilling and satisfying. Even if we've been hurt in the past, even if we've moved a lot, even if we've made mistakes, even if we aren't really sure we want to try again, even if we just don't have the energy Our souls are longing for it. And Jesus makes it possible for us to experience it. See, we were created for community. We need friends. And the church should be the beacon of what a friendship really looks like, right? This is the challenge for us as a church is not just that like, hey, we'll show up and we're gonna sing some songs. They're really good. It's gonna be great. Uh, And then some guy's gonna talk, usually better than this, but it'll be fine. We'll get through this, we're almost done, Um, right? And then we, we have like a great lunch. Like that's not church. That's just like a moment on a Sunday. Church is the depth of a community that does things that go beyond what the world expects. Church is the reality of what it looks like for us to deeply understand our forgiveness and the hope we have in Christ and the eternal perspective rather than the temporary one and the values that we have instilled in us from God's word and the desires to sacrifice so that others could experience that. Look, that's why we want you to join a team. Right? Like, I don't have you just like fill out connect cards when you're new or, or have somebody sign up at a team fair just so that they could be like, all right, check that box. Now I'm in. I'm doing it. This is great. Okay. No, it's what I want you to do because I want you to experience what it's like to be a part of the mission of God. Because your soul has been transformed by the Spirit of God entering into you and, and the love that you've experienced begins to move you out of your pew and into some of these other places to serve, right? It's the idea that you're a part of that. And even more so, as you're doing that, the person next to you doing the same thing, you can build friendships with. 
Some of the depths of relationships that I have have come out of serving alongside of people. That's why we want you to have a part of a community group so that you have people that come alongside of you so that when you have a baby, they're bringing you meals. When you have a loss in your family, they're comforting you with with an arm around your shoulders. When you're experiencing some type of confusion, they can bring wisdom. When you're experiencing temptation, they can pull you back from that sin. They want your life to be good and encouraging and uplifting, and they wanna be a part of that. That's what it looks like to have a relationship. Right, that's why we give. I know, I'm gonna go there for a second, but it's true. That's why we give to church. Like there's two reasons to give to a church. One, it's worship. Lauren and I give, I'm a pastor. You guys support our life through a salary. I'm a pastor of this church. And yet we still give money to the church because it's an act of worship. Jesus said, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, when we give money to things, we start to care more about those things. We start to be invested in those things. And so if maybe it's a nonprofit organization, a charity, something you're really passionate about, you're giving your money to, you tend to get more invested. The more money you give, the more often you give, the more regularly you give, you think about that thing more. Maybe it's your truck and you buy the next thing so you can take that camping trip, so you can get that cooler, so you can do all the cool things with your friends. You can go to the lake and you get the trailer, right? Wherever you put that money, that's where your heart's at. That's why we give. The reality is the second thing is this, as we give to the church, we start to care more about the people in this room. We start to care more about all of the people on this campus. We start to care more about the mission that we have as a church to see others experience the relationships that we long for, to see others experience the the hope and the joy and the satisfaction of knowing Jesus and having a relationship with God, our father and a relationship with brothers and sisters who've been adopted by his blood. This is what it looks like to be a church. And as we experience those things, other people around us, in our city, in our community, around the world, start to look in and see what the heck is wrong with those people? Like they disagree on things. They disagree on like who they're gonna vote for in a few months. They disagree on like what the right direction is for like, I don't know, a million different things. They disagree on whether or not it was great that the Diamondbacks beat the the Dodgers last night. I mean, I'm sorry, everybody agrees the Dodgers should always lose, but... Um, right, but they disagree on so many things and yet they have this unity, right? Unity isn't conformity. Unity is being bound together and it's being bound together in Christ and pursuing that and serving one another out of that and loving one another out of that and and continuing to try and continuing to dig deeper and continuing to experience a greater sense of fulfillment because of that. Because we're not better off alone. That's the worst, Isolation is insanity. We are created for community. It's not easy, but Jesus makes it possible. And not only does he make it possible, but he created this, a community of people to come together and to experience it with one another and to invite others into it and to get over ourselves, our sin, and to bind us together in his peace, his hope, and his love. Let's strive for that. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would encourage us this morning, God, that we are created to have friendships and relationships with with others. And I pray that this church would be a place where people experience that uh, at a depth and a breadth far and above more than they could in any other sort of social gathering or group because of Uh, being on the same team or having some of the same interests, God, but that Jesus would be a foundation that we build upon. 
a foundation that goes above and beyond any temporary thing in this world and it's eternal. That he is our savior and our hope and that he is also our friend. Because he loved us first, we can love others, God. We pray that you would cling to that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.